Yeah. <laughs> you got some waffles in there. Huh? So uh, we're going to be in Acts 3 again today. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Three seventeen. Um, God, again, we just ask you to bless our time in your word. It's true. It's right. And uh, God, it's um, what we need. God, we can't live by anything else but by your word. God, it gives us strength and hope and peace. And really, it just instructs us and draws us close to you. So God, would you do that today by your spirit and uh, refresh us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 317, uh, the title of today's message is uh, Times of refreshing um you guys know acts the acts of the apostles peter and paul and the other guys written by luke written around AD 63 um again i think it's interesting that something written so long ago is so valuable for today um and it still makes sense for today you read the bible and you go wow these are the exact issues that we're dealing with in our day and age um, you know they're remaking all these shakespeare movies and some of them look good um, but they're not quite the same <laughs> don't have the same depth to them. Yeah, they're written very well, and the themes are interesting and sometimes interwoven and dramatic, but the things the Bible talks about are true forever. Um, Not one jot or tittle, uh, Jesus said, would pass away um, until he returns. It would always be. It would be forever. Uh, But last week, we saw the guy who was lame from birth that was at the beautiful gate. We talked about sin, sickness, and a fallen world, and to have a fixed perspective, you know, the importance of eye contact, that they looked this man in, this eye, in the eye and he looked them back, totally expecting to receive something. And I hope that we look, as we look into the word today, that we're expecting to receive something. Um, I know I am, and I hope that we all are. But that healing bears witness that the reason why this miracle happened was, yes, to bless this man, bring him into a better physical life and to, to refresh his spiritual life. But it was used as a miracle, and as we'll see, to, to bring other people to know God. And even today, we're reading this 2,000 years later, from this one, in a sense, little miracle has done a lot in many people's lives. You know, this part of chapter 3 might not even exist if God chose not to heal this guy. They would just went on. It would have been another day that they went to the temple. Um, but this week, uh, we're going to see uh, Peter's response. Peter's response. Uh, but last time, we talked about what do you think of miracles? Or what do we think of miracles and how we see them on TV and elsewhere? And maybe we, we kind of brush them off. Uh, but this time... What's our response to a miracle? I never really thought about that before, before getting into this chapter for this study, was what is our response to a miracle? If we see a miracle, what do we respond to it? What, what is the right way to respond to it? Maybe what is the wrong way to respond to it? Uh, but really just something to think about, that a miracle is not just a miracle in itself for a miracle's sake. But let's pick it up in verse 17. Uh, Peter says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. And that was crucifying the Lord and asking for Barabbas back, um, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who is preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. 
I think it's pretty interesting that Peter, of all people, who was outside of the court, who was there when Jesus was arrested, who cut off the high priest's servant's ear, who denied the Lord in the presence of all those people and bitterly wept and was brought back to the Lord and, and saw all the things firsthand that went on that these people did to Jesus. He says to them, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. That's pretty crazy. If I were there and I saw those things, I would go, you didn't do it in ignorance. You knew full, full well what you're doing. And yet, I think that's probably why he drew the sword. <laughs> that's probably why he tried to cut off uh, the guy's ear. And yet, what did the Lord say on the cross when they were nailing him? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And even Stephen later on, we'll see in the book of Acts, when he's stoned to death, he says, God, forgive them. Forgive them. I think that that's the difference here, that when Peter was empowered by the Spirit, he could see things the way that God saw them, that yet they had an idea of what they were doing. They purposely did what they were doing. It's not like they backed over um, something in their car in reverse and didn't know their kid's bike was in the driveway and they did it in ignorance, or uh, they wrote a check and they didn't realize how much money was in their bank account, and so they were overdrafted and they did that in ignorance. But really that they did it in ignorance, that they were spiritually blind, that they had their own ideas and concepts um, and like we talked about when Jesus says that the light, when the light you have is really darkness, how deep that darkness will be, that these people did not know what they were doing. And I think that that speaks of grace, of God's grace, that, hey, I know you're doing wrong. I know you willfully are doing wrong, and yet somehow you're doing this wrong in ignorance because you're not aware of the truth of the Scripture and the truth of God. But, you know, Peter gave them the hard truth. They killed Jesus, the giver of life like we saw. And they missed God's Messiah, and they were on their way to hell. But he wraps it in love. He says, I know you did all this in ignorance. You know that, yeah, you're a wicked sinner. You killed God, but you did it in ignorance. And that word ignorance really is lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. But especially of divine things, of moral blindness. And man, do we live in an age of moral blindness? Do we live in a day and time when, when people have no idea what is right and wrong, and they begin to legislate things that are right and wrong. They begin to do things that are wrong and they think it is totally right. But that's also because of God's grace. God has given this age of grace since the cross to the day he returns when, yeah, we can go about sinning and we don't have to go and sacrifice animals because Jesus was a sacrifice. And yet somehow God says, you're doing it in ignorance. You're doing it in ignorance. But I think for us, we cannot really claim ignorance, especially in America or in Western society, even a post-Christian Western society. We have the scriptures. We've had the scriptures. We've seen the church. We've had the church. Our nation wasn't Buddhist for a thousand years. When it was founded, it was founded by people who at least had the Bible, who were fleeing religious persecution in England to bring freedom here and scripture here. And not that they did it perfectly, or maybe even they weren't even all believers in the, in the truest biblical sense of the word, but they had the Bible. And we've had the Bible. They used to teach the Bible in school instead of textbooks. But we've heard the message. Guys like Billy Graham, all last century, preaching the gospel. I think everyone's heard of Billy Graham. I mean, unless you're an immigrant in the past few years, maybe you haven't. But if you're around at any amount of time in the 20th century in America, you heard who Billy Graham was. You saw something that he did on TV. So I don't know that we can claim ignorance. I mean, maybe we can because we've heard the word just like the Jews heard the word and they went to temple and synagogue and they thought they were doing the right thing for this guy who was blaspheming, but they still missed the point. They knew the Bible, but they missed the point. In verse 18 says that, that God foretold 
by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That God foretold it, that the scriptures are clear if we'd but read them. If we'd read the Old Testament with open eyes, we would see that they speak all about Jesus. Oh, well, it's a violent God. It's a bad God. It's judgment God. Well, let's read a little bit more. Let's think about it a little bit more and not just go in with our uh, prejudices. And we'll see that they do speak of God's holiness and God does bring judgment, but it's all for a reason because of sin. But he says by the mouth of all his prophets, all his prophets, we talked about prophecy as a gift, but God uses that gift and wants to get his word out. And that every one of his prophets, in a sense, although they had slightly different messages, they spoke to different times and different people, the message was all coherent. It was all about the Messiah who was coming. It was all about the truth of God and who God is. And they all lined up. You know, we have 66 books by, uh, was it 40 authors or something like that? And they all point to the same thing. They're all exactly the same. Written over, was it 1,400, 1,500 years around that neighborhood? Where they speak of the same exact thing. The same exact God. And again, you know, we've probably said it a million times before, but you take a science textbook from a kid's class and this year and last year they're different. A hundred years ago, 200 years ago, a thousand years ago, they'd be very different, very different. But every prophecy speaks concerning God and every message was at least in some way pointing to the Messiah. You know, that's what prophecy is. It, it tends to have three parts, an immediate fulfillment to the people of that day, uh, a future fulfillment, uh, perhaps down the line, you know, you're going to be invaded in a certain amount of time, or maybe that future fulfillment is today, or maybe uh, an eternal fulfillment as well, where this has a picture in heaven. Um, and I think that from those, we can get a personal application. Uh, for an example, in Revelation, we have John, by the Spirit, on Patmos, writing to the seven churches in Asia. And there were seven actual churches that he was writing to. But those seven churches also represent the seven church ages from the time of Christ until his return. Um, and so it's not just a physical, literal church, but it's also a group of churches over a span of time. But then also, I think you can have, um, you know, an eternal fulfillment where we see some of those churches get to heaven with no problem and others are warned and, and told to repent. But then there's also a personal application. Where do we fit in? What type of church do we belong to or, or what type of church are we in our own heart? You know, are we one who's known for our good works, but we have dead faith? I don't know. But he says here that these prophets all said that the Christ would suffer and that he has thus fulfilled. That these prophecies all spoke of Jesus Christ suffering. You know, we read Isaiah, we read the Psalms, we hear about him suffering. And I think that that's what they missed. They were looking for um, a, a political Messiah, an immediate fulfillment of the final fulfillment. Yes, God is going to come back and rule one day as king on earth, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth and rule and reign. But they were looking for him to take over their current political environment. They were looking for him to come and defeat the Romans, so to speak. And, and he did, in a way, spiritually, because the Roman Empire eventually became Christian, eventually fell because uh, it just fell apart. But Christianity has still survived to this day, has outlasted the Roman Empire. But they missed that he would suffer. They missed that he would suffer. And I think sometimes we don't like to see those verses. That, oh yes, brethren, you're going to suffer tribulation. When hard times come upon you, rejoice. I think we don't like to hear those things because we live in such a hard wor world already. And we look forward to heaven and being out of this place enough that to hear that, man, things might actually get worse for us. That's, that's kind of hard to hear sometimes. I know I don't want to hear it. I want to go, no, I want all my needs met. I want all my bills paid. I want to go out and have a good time and not be afraid. But that may not be the case. That may not be the case. You know, the Bible talks about the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. 
Does that mean that the Antichrist came 2,000 years ago? Well, not the final one, but there's certainly guys like Hitler who fulfill a lot of the things, but he's not the real Antichrist, but he's got the spirit of the Antichrist. And that's the thing. God's plan is eternal, but it plays out in the temporal, where God has an eternal plan, an eternal fulfillment of something, but sometimes we get little bits and pieces of it before it's finally fulfilled because God's word travels through time. And um, it's something that obviously none of us really totally understand, but really we see that when God speaks, stuff begins to happen and it's going to be fulfilled in many different ways because God's word is able to get through everything. And God's word is applicable to every part of our life and every part of history. But now that they're not ignorant, you know, they were ignorant, they did these things, the miracles happened, their, their eyes were opened in a sense. Hey, wait a minute. Something's going on here. This guy was healed. Peter begins to give them the gospel. He tells them that, yeah, you did these things, but God wants to forgive you. You know, the miracle opened the door for the gospel message. The gospel message opened their eyes that they had this spiritual need that, yes, they were ignorant to the fact that they were in sin and that they were uh, in great need. If you guys want to turn to Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 8. We're going to read a few verses there. We're going to be in a bunch of places in Romans today. Um, time permitting. But Romans 8, I mean, sorry, excuse me, Romans 10, verse 8. And you all probably know this, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess your, with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and from the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And we've read this recently. But for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Forever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call unto him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach uh, the gospel of peace, who brings glad tidings of good things. And it goes on, it says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He says that they knew. They knew exactly what the Bible said. The gospel was laid out for them before the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happened. And yet they were ignorant. And yet they were ignorant. And yet they were still going to be held accountable for it. It's not that they weren't going to be held accountable for it. Um, you know, just because you're going down the, the highway and the speed limit is 65 and you're going 80 and you get pulled over and the officer says, uh, you're going 80 to 65. You say, officer, well, I didn't know it was 65. Well, too bad. You were still doing it. Just because you're ignorant of it doesn't mean it wasn't your responsibility to look for the signs. Or if you miss the signs, perhaps drive a little bit slower and assume that the speed limit was less. These are things that we are responsible for, and ignorance cannot be claimed as a, as a way out of it. But he says here, uh, verse 19, repent and be converted. That repentance, like we talked about, is the turning around, the changing of your mind 
But that is not the end. It's the beginning. Conversion is the physical, mental, spiritual, and more actions one takes after changing their mind. That we repent, that we're presented with the truth, we're presented that with our ignorance that we're no longer going to be ignorant about our sin and the reality of God and who Jesus is. And we, when we repent, we then turn. And from that turning, we now are converted. Our lives begin to be changed. Yeah, a lot of it's supernatural. God takes things out and we pray for God to help us through things. But some things are more practical, saying, okay, I'm going to read my Bible now. Yeah, I have a desire for it now, but I'm going to act on that desire. I'm going to get up and go to church. I'm going to go and share with someone I know. I'm going to memorize a verse. I'm going to listen to Christian music. I'm going to throw out these old things. I'm going to begin to be obedient to the Spirit of God. And I believe that that is true conversion. It's not just, um, as some religions might say, where you start going to another church or you put on the different t-shirt or you have the different style. Um, But really that it's your life is converted. It's not just um, a change of name. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And there's great studies that we could do through there. But really, again, that conversion is not a name only, that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That yes, we've repented. Yes, we've been converted. But there's this process of sanctification from here till heaven where we really need to live out the word. Where the Jews here knew what the scripture said. They've seen a miracle. And Peter says you need to repent. You're no longer ignorant. You need to repent and be converted and begin to live out what you know to be the truth. And I think that that's a major problem in our day and age that maybe we know the truth. Maybe it's just in the church, but we know what the truth is, but we don't live it out. We don't live it out so much. And that can be a big problem because that will dull us to spiritual truths. That will put us in a place of ignorance and complacency when we really have no business being ignorant or complacent. You know, uh, the true resurrection and true new life, that's the evidence of conversion, that your life is changed, it is new. Second Corinthians 5.17, again, I think most people have probably heard this verse, that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. My wife and I were joking about some stuff we used to wear before being saved, and maybe if we still had it or not, and just how we wouldn't wear that anymore. I go, yeah, we're a new creation. We're a new creation. I have no business wanting to put that on. And that's the case because we are not the same people anymore. Yeah, there's stuff that comes up that reminds me of who I used to be, but I need to kill it. I need to get rid of it. But all things are new. All things are new. And he says in verse 19, we'll read again, that repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That part of this conversion is saying, I don't want to do this sin anymore. Like Paul says, so we continue in sin that where grace abounds? No, heaven forbid. We don't want anything to do with our sinful past anymore. And with that, times of refreshing may come. That repentance brings refreshment. If you look back to um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal where there was no rain and all these prophets were crying out and they had this competition and they were cutting themselves all day and screaming out and Elijah says, hey, maybe your God's sleeping or he's on the bathroom and ha ha, he can't hear you. And then Elijah prays and the, God says fire this miracle and lights up this altar that's all wet and people begin to, to turn to God as was his prayer. But then Elijah prays for rain and these clouds show up and all of a sudden the land has rain again because the people began to repent. The people began to see who God was and began to turn from their idols back to the living God. And so God, of course, is going to bless that. You know, if my kids are doing something wrong 
and I bring it to their attention and they stop doing something wrong, I'm going to want to give them something good. I'm going to want to give them that dessert, that ice cream, that take them out, let them have fun, continue, maybe stay up a little bit later because why would I not want to reward a good behavior? Even if they were doing something wrong because they realize it was wrong and they want to stop and say sorry or do something else, of course I'm going to want to reward that because I want them to continue in that. I think that's the same way with the Lord in a sense that refreshment lays the groundwork for restoration, that we repent and then we can be refreshed. And from that refreshment, things in our life can be restored. Things that we've lost in our life, like the rain, the crops, can now come back because God brought that refreshment and now the crops can grow. You know, relationships cannot be restored until there's forgiveness and repentance. There's something going on with you and someone else. Yeah, you need to repent. And yeah, you need to ask for forgiveness. But you all know what it's like when there's that giant elephant in the room or the 300-pound gorilla or whatever they call where it's like there's just something between you and them and you don't even have to say it, but it's there. And and things will never be the same until it is said. And, and maybe it's been said and maybe you've asked for forgiveness and maybe you have repented and it's still there because they haven't let it go. And again, that's not really our responsibility other than to repent and ask for forgiveness, but refreshment and a restored relationship is not going to happen until those things are dealt with. But God forgave us first. God forgave us first. And that's what the cross is about. That's what the gospel is about. Again, more famous scripture that you you probably know. Uh, Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, For when we are still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that in while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And Romans 2.4, Do you not despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What he's saying here is that it was God's forgiveness that led to our repentance. That even when we were enemies of God, he had already forgiven us. And would you or I repent if God had not forgiven us first? If it was dependent on us turning to God and repenting, and then God say, okay, now I forgive you, would we have repented? I don't know. I don't know that I would have repented if, if God hadn't come to me. If God hadn't let me know that he loves me and that he wants me to come to him and that he's not going to punish me if I come to him. You know, how would it be if we weren't really sure how God would react? If we would come to God and say, God, would you forgive me? Not knowing if he's going to beat us over the head with a bat. Not knowing if he's going to accept our forgiveness or cast us to hell. Not knowing. I think of other religions that that's the case for them. They don't know. Even if they do everything right, they don't have a guarantee. And I think that that's part of why all prophecy and scripture point to the cross. For those who believed in God and put their faith and trust in God and his Messiah before the cross, they knew that God had planned it. They knew that this was part of God's plan from before the fall and that he even prophesied it at the fall that he would crush Satan's head. And they could look forward to the cross in faith knowing that God had done it and planned it beforehand. And I think for us, it's the same thing, except we look back to the cross. We know that God forgave us of the cross. We know that God planned it before everything. Before we were even born, God forgave us. And I think that that's crazy. 
That's crazy. That while we were born, we lived and did our own things, and we sinned blatantly against God, like the Bible says we were in enemies of God. And I read this morning that those uh, who are enemies of God curse his name and blaspheme his name, and I think of how many times I blasphemed before I came to know the Lord. And yet God still loved me. I think in a sense, the more I did that, the more God said, hey, <laughs> wake up. I think that that's what we miss in the Bible. That's what people miss in the Bible. They think that God has not already forgiven them, but he's already forgiven them. Everything was taken care of on the cross. All our sin was forgiven then. We just have to come to him. And, and that's the kindness. That we don't have to do anything. It's already been done. We just have to accept it. And when people say, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, he didn't. He's already forgiven them. They, they are in, they're in ignorance. They don't realize that God has already done the forgiving. And that if someone goes to hell, it's, it's their own fault, really. But verse 21 says, For whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since before the world began. Excuse me. You know, the restoration of all things, Romans 8, 22 through 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but also we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. You know, he says that his holy prophets, even before the world began, spoke. Well, Jesus spoke, and Jesus is a prophet, as we'll see, but the whole world is rotting because of sin. The whole world. The whole world. I mean, read the news. Look around. It's, it's pretty obvious. You know, Ashley and I were sharing some news stories with each other this week, and it's really kind of I think, I forget exactly how he said it, but when we read the stories, they're so out there, it doesn't seem real. And yet, when you read them and you go, wow, this really is real, it's kind of eye-opening. That, wow, this world is wicked. This world is under the full sway of sin, and creation even groans for it. Creation groans for it. You know, not that we go out and sin and the world has an earthquake and, you know, Gaia and all this garbage because of human activity. But I think in a sense, yeah, I think the world is falling apart because of sin. You know, there was a flood because of sin. A lot of animals died because of sin. Sin is here, guys. And these things are real. These things are real. And I think when we try to block them out, we try to block out the reality of sin and block out the reality of a fallen world, we miss the, we miss the point for a need for a new heaven and new earth. We miss the point for a need for a Savior because we're willfully ignorant. But when we're willfully awake to say, wow, this world is messed up. I am messed up. We need a Savior. It goes, wow, yeah, the Bible is real. The Bible becomes very real. But this word restoration here speaks of a true theocracy or the perfect state before the fall. And it's interesting that it talks about the restoration of a theocracy that they wanted. The Roman government asked even the religious leaders of the day were corrupt and they needed new religious leaders. And that's sort of what happens here in Acts where we see the church grow and we get religious leaders in their day who are truly in love with God and truly in love with the people. But theocracy is a government by God. It's a government by God. And that's what Israel had before they had the kings. And we remember that they cried out to be like the people around them and God gave them Saul knowing full well what would happen, but he gave them their desires. But that's the same thing for us. We get into big trouble when government with a little g tries to be government with a big G. 
Now, I'm not anti-government by any stretch of the imagination. I, neither is God. God created government. Romans talks about us being subject to the government. Um, but the government is not God. The government is not God. Even the Constitution, our technical government, is meant to protect the liberties that God has given us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's what the Constitution outlines. The Constitution doesn't give us life. It doesn't give us liberty. It doesn't give us the pursuit of happiness. It just frames those things to keep the government from infringing on those things. But our government really has turned those things around. I think many governments have. You know, you look at these other nations who haven't had a Christian presence in them, and you look at how oppressive their government is, and you look at the weakness of the Christian church and the Christian presence in our nation, and you wonder why it's getting so bad. Well, that's why. But I think people, too, we've become ignorant as to God being the one who's going to provide for our needs. And so we begin to turn to man, and we begin to turn to government with a big G, and not a theocracy government, and then that's when the real problem is. And granted, no matter what we do, no matter how we vote, uh, you know, I'm for voting and for these things, but really things will never be as the way they should be until Jesus is running the world again, until Jesus is on the throne and, and Satan doesn't have his sway anymore. Um, you know, because God says what's right and wrong and God makes the right judgment. And we see that in the Bible, in the Millennial Kingdom, in Revelation, when Jesus comes back and rules with an iron fist for a thousand years um, to show people that, hey, you know, things could have been done a lot better if, if I was on heaven and on earth, and then he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But it also speaks before the fall, that there is this restored fellowship. That man, the true point of God revealing our sin, convicting us of it, and wanting us to repent and be converted, is that we'd have a right and good relationship with him again. That our relationship with God would be restored. When he used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, when he wanted to hang out with them and have nothing between them and be no shame and no realization that, hey, I'm naked because that's the way God made them. God wants to go back to that state of innocence. But it can't until we repent. It can't until we're converted. It can't until we've been refreshed and restored by God. Because how can it? If we're living in sin, that's the big white elephant in the room or the big elephant, whatever you call it between us and God. And God goes, well, I want you to know who I am and I want to have a relationship with you, but you're too busy having a relationship with your idol. You're too busy having a relationship with your sin. And so there's a major disconnect. But it, the Bible is very clear. And even in this message that God spoke of sin, God spoke of a suffering Messiah to take care of that sin, but God also spoke of restoration. And again, that's the hope in the gospel message that there's reality, there's responsibility, but then there's restoration. And I think a lot of people have been burned by the church and burned by Christians because they only get two of those things. They get reality and they get responsibility. You're a sinner and you're going to go to hell and it's your fault. You need to do something about it. Well, that's part of it. But really the heart of the message is that there would be restoration. Restoration. And I love that the word rest is in restoration because we don't have to work anymore. We can relax and spend time with God. Let's go on in verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. And we'll stop there. It says that prophet with a capital P, that Jesus was the prophet. 
You know, all the other guys in the Old Testament were doing the same thing. They were speaking God's words on God's behalf uh, to God's people to bring repentance and bring uh, warning and to bring uh, encouragement and hope in the Messiah. But they were not the final word. They were not the final word. Jesus is the final word. He's the Alpha and the Omega. John 12, 42 through 50 says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And that's prophecy there. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. And it says that Jesus didn't judge them. And the world might take that verse and say, look, Jesus didn't come to judge us. Well, read the next few verses, guys. He took their judgment on his first coming. But his second coming, well, the words he spoke and the sin the people did will be their judgment. Because God's command is what? Not judgment. God's command is everlasting life. And that's the message that Jesus brought, everlasting life. But people who don't want that everlasting life, who want the life now, only get the judgment. And they see and hear his message of judgment because they're ignorant to the full message. But God's given plenty of time to repent. I mean, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and we're still going headlong into our sin. We're still turning away from God by the second. But I don't think it's going to be for much longer. I mean, thankfully, God's patient. But we really totally denied him as a society. And if you guys want to turn to Romans 1, 18. Through 32. We're just going to read this just to kind of get a framework. And we're not really going to dig in too much of it. But felt kind of led to go here today. It says, uh, Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But some became, but, excuse me, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in their heart, and excuse me, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman 
spurned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You know, I read that partly because of things that are going on in society right now, and I didn't feel led to do it last week, but I feel like this week the Lord would have his touch on it. The point of that is that these things are the result of God giving them up, that they've left God in their mind, they left God in their heart, they knew the truth of God, and yet they chose to be willfully ignorant. So God said, all right, have it your way. <laughs> yeah, and God doesn't work for Burger King. But God gave them up. And there's a great study we could do in Romans. You've probably already done it. But we, we are all under, I think, the full abandonment judgment of God. Maybe not full, but I think 99.9 .9 at this point. Abandonment judgment of God in America. It's only a matter of time before things totally implode. And the sin, in a sense, is in the judgment. The sin is the evidence of the judgment of God that's fully underway. And it's not just homosexuality, like it says here. It's talking about all these other things being untrustworthy, unforgiving, unmerciful. You know how many road rage videos there are online? You know how many lies are coming out of Congress or out of schools or out of every organization that's out there? That's just a sign that we've turned from God. That God said, okay, you don't want me? We want a prayer out of school in the 60s, abortion, all these other things. God said, okay, you can do it your way. You can have it your way. Again, the sin isn't the judgment. It's the evidence of the judgment fully underway. Because we've abandoned God, he's letting us have our sin. He's letting us have it. He's letting us have it. And I think that one of the, the strongest verses here, 32, says, "Who Knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Like I said, we've all heard the gospel. The majority of America, yeah, I know there's a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who maybe haven't heard the gospel. And it's actually quite surprising uh, to me that that number is actually going up. But they've heard of these things and they know the truth, whether they're actually practicing them or they're just approving of them that the world is day, these days and age are also approving of it. They say, yeah, you can do that. I know what the Bible says, but you can do that. You can do that. I approve of it. I'm going to celebrate it with you. And, and I don't think that the Bible would have us celebrate any of that with them. doesn't mean that we hate them. Anyone who's doing those things, just like if someone's going through a divorce and they're committing adultery, I don't, I'm not going to go celebrate their adulterous relationship. If someone stole a bunch of things, I'm not going to go help them go to the pawn shop and sell them. So why, if someone is having homosexual marriage, am I going to go celebrate with them? Do I say, I hate you. You're doing No, I just say, no, I'm sorry. I can't celebrate it with you. It's just what the Bible says. And we even read before that they love the praise of men more than they, they love the praise of God. And I think that that's the state we're in is that, hey, yeah, I believe something different than you, but that doesn't mean that I have to agree with you. It doesn't mean that I have to go along with you, but it also doesn't mean that I have to hate you either. And the world certainly doesn't understand that these days. But it makes sense. We've turned from God, so why would we understand the things of God? Let's go on to these last few verses as we get ready to close. In verse 25 in Acts 3, You are the sons of the prophets 
and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. It's cool. He says that you are the sons of the prophets. What a thing to be able to say that, that your great-great-great-great-grandfather was Jeremiah or Isaiah or Moses. You know, I think that's awesome that there are people out there who are uh, physically Jewish, who physically can trace their roots back there. I'm thankful also the Bible says that we've been grafted in, that spiritually we're a part of the same tree. But what a thing to be able to say that. You know, we think of our forefathers here in America being July 4th weekend and the guys who founded this nation. Uh, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. But what a deeper draw they had to these men of God that were their spiritual fathers. And I think we can look to the guys in the Bible as our spiritual fathers, like the people in Acts, Peter, Paul, Stephen, uh, James, all these Christians who we can look at and say, yeah, these are the, the fathers of our faith. But he says um, that you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant and of the covenant to Abraham. They are the fulfillment of prophecy, the Jewish people, and they still are. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. This is the second thing God says to Abraham after almost sacrificing Isaac. He says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. First time he said, Abraham, don't do it. By myself, he says, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply. Excuse me, your descendants as the stars of heaven, and as the sand in which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That the people here that Peter's talking to, and even Peter himself, are the fulfillment of this word that God gave to Abraham, that the Jews would continue to exist, and they still exist today, and out of them came the Messiah. But God's picture was bigger than that. And Peter says that. He says that all the families, that not only the Jews, but all the families of earth, that every family on earth has an opportunity to be blessed because of this one Jewish man who lived and died and rose again, who's also God, came out of the Jewish people. And that's because God wants to bless everyone. And the blessing of God is freedom from sin. It's not freedom to sin, like some might say. The miracle of this lame man being healed refreshed that man's body, his life, and led him to rejoice. And that miracle in his life was meant to bring a miracle of repentance in the Jews' hearts. But it's also been throughout history to reach many more people that, yeah, these miracles happen, and yeah, people did turn to God from it. But really, like we read earlier, that who are the ones that are going to drive the Jews to jealousy? The Gentiles who have faith in Jesus. So you and I are also fulfilling of that prophecy. But he says to you first, to you first, to those who hear it and are the first to able to receive it, that if something happens in our presence, in our midst, that's because God wants to reach us first and use us. You know, if God began to do a work in us, it's because he wants to use us and he wants to, to bring it to other people. But it says that they raised him up, that raising him up, and that was the beginning of the blessing. That again, the story wasn't over at the cross, that it would really restarted at the resurrection and the picture of grace versus mercy that not only was mercy given where yeah our sins are not given imputed to us anymore and yeah we were forgiven at the cross but then from the resurrection in a sense comes this age of grace that not only can we be forgiven in mercy and not expected to pay back our debt but now we are also given a blessing on top of that a new life a free life able to live free from the effects of sin and not just be forgiven of our sin 
And again, what is the beginning of blessing? It's being turned away from our sin and iniquity toward God. That this is God's heart the whole time. Not to just clean us up and pat us on the behind and have us go on our way, but really that we could be forgiven and we could be drawn near to him. And that's the message of the gospel, that we can be brought towards God. But the blessing of refreshing only comes by being broken and repenting. And the world today does not want to be broken, does not want to repent. And all the world, God is doing everything possible to bring the world to repentance. Look at nations like Greece where it's totally imploding. And yet people, I don't know, maybe there's going to be repentance. Maybe, I don't know. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That there's still hope. I believe America is full on in abandonment judgment at this point. But I think there's still hope. Why? Because we're still here. Believers are still here. As long as we're still on earth, there's still a chance for us to pray and the church to repent of its own sins, of accepting sin and endorsing sin and living in sin, but to repent of those things and to be a miracle in the world. You know, God wants to do miracles and he loved to do it through his church, but are we in a place where God wants to do those things? Or God can do those things, excuse me. You know, there's still hope for blessing in our lives and in our land, but will we receive it again? Are we in a place where we want to receive it, or are we too busy doing something else? I think that God wants to pour out his blessing on this nation. It's obvious he hasn't let us be totally destroyed yet, despite what, how close we're getting. Um, but will we receive it? And again, that's the message of the cross, that God has a gift for everyone. That gift is restoration and refreshing and a relationship with him, but again, people don't want to receive it. And I pray that um, that Lord, we would receive your blessing, that we would be broken, we would allow you to break us, and uh, God, we repent of our sin. God, would you put us in a place where we can be used, God, even if that means harder times, uh, God, would you draw us close, and would you forgive our land? Uh, maybe they're doing it in ignorance, I don't know, but they've had the word. Maybe they, they don't know the real message of the cross. God, would you let the gospel go out and begin to change this world and change this land again? Let there be a revival, but God, would you begin to work in us and do these things in us that we long to see in others. And uh, uh, we know that you're going to do them, and we trust you. And uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.